Welcome, Table Church, to Season of Lent. Uh, here we are in the Season of Lent, and what that means is the church around the world, uh, 42 days from now, will be celebrating Easter. And so during these next 42 days, we're in the Season of Lent to be reflecting and thinking about the need for the cross of Christ and how ultimately that leads to his death on a cross. And he then rises victoriously from the grave in which we celebrate Easter. So during Lent, remember that in the midst of all the competing narratives that are out there and in there, that your identity in Christ is the deepest thing about you and the truest thing about you. So have hope during this Lenten season. Well, let me also welcome you to our journey through Scripture. Welcome back. We are today in the sixth book of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Yeah, today is the book of Joshua. And what we're going to do each week that we cover a book of the Bible is... Number one, I want to give a narrative summary of that book of the Bible, and the second thing I want to do is choose a sample passage from that book of the Bible that's incredibly relevant to us today. So let's get started with our narrative summary of the book of Joshua. Well, a time clue here in the book of Joshua is that it's picking up right where the book of Deuteronomy leaves off, and that is where Moses dies. Moses dies, and now Joshua is the leader. And so uh, it's a period of probably around 20 years. That's the, the time span that's covered here in the book of Joshua. Uh, but, but the Israelites are ready to enter the promised land. I mean, remember back with me that the last five books of the Bible that we've covered, God has made a covenant. Uh, He's promised to be a faithful God, a God that uh, the people can trust, a leader that they can trust. And he's led them all the way to here the banks of the Jordan River. And so here in the book of Joshua, it's basically historiography. Uh, It is a retelling of the story that God gives and his people receives. God is going to give them their own land, a land they could have never gotten on their own. It was, it was God who was going to do this for them. So the illustration is imagine inheriting uh, a beautiful piece of property. Yeah, imagine inheriting some real estate. And so you spend a number of years finally getting to the real estate that belongs to you and is going to be yours, and the only problem is once you finally get to that uh, piece of real estate that you've thought a lot about, the only problem is once you get there, it's inhabited by lots of other people, lots of other nations are there, and they're not too happy about the thought of you coming in and taking that land. They're not too excited about turning over their property to Israel. That's what the book of Joshua is about. But under the leadership of Joshua, the Lord is the divine warrior. It's not Joshua. It's not Joshua's people. It is the Lord who's the divine warrior, and he's going to bring his people into the land of promise and give them his rest. Four major uh, 
movements or four major themes here in the book of Joshua. Number one is that Joshua is the one leading Israel. He's the new Moses. He's calling the people of God to embrace the covenant from the heart, just like Moses was calling uh, those people to embrace the covenant from the heart. Uh, the, the, the cool thing here is that some Canaanites, the land that they're going into, some of the Canaanites actually turn and begin to follow the God of Israel. And the Jordan River parts with priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land, you know, similar to the Red Sea being parted there in the book of Exodus that we looked at weeks ago. The second major movement is, is these battles the battle scenes with the Canaanites. Now, this story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle. Israel is going to play the role of spectators. They're going to play the role of supporters, but it's God's plan. For example, the the battle at at Jericho. Uh, Israel was to take this passive approach, and if you haven't read about the battle at Jericho Uh, Go back and read it there in the book of Joshua. But they're to take this passive approach. God's presence is in the Ark of the Covenant. And they're they're instructed to walk, simply walk around the city uh, to, to music playing for six days. And the thought was just how Rahab turned to the God of Israel. Uh, Perhaps the people of Jericho would also do the same thing. That doesn't happen, but nonetheless, on the seventh day, the priests blow trumpets and the walls of Jericho come crashing down. It's amazing. The point, the point of that battle and all of these battles that take place here in the book of Joshua is God is the one who's going to deliver his people. God's people simply need to trust him and wait on him. And if Israel is going to inherit the land that they've been promised, they need to be patient. They need to wait on God and to trust in God. These stories of the battles and all the violence that you read in the book of Joshua is bothersome, honestly, to me personally. And I think to anyone who reads this book, they're going to bother you if you haven't read this book before. I mean, didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Uh, love those who hate you? I mean, why is God going into war? Is this some sort of genocide that is happening? I mean, and why the Canaanites? Now, uh, some of the answers here from scholars, biblical scholars and others that have written about this, uh, explain that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt. There's a moral corruption, uh, especially regarding sex. Go back and look at Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go back and look at Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want those evil practices to influence Israel, his chosen people. And so genocide doesn't doesn't fit here in the book of Joshua. God was actually open to those who would return to him. And the Canaanites who did turn to God, like Rahab, Uh, or the Gibeonites. So these stories mark a a unique moment in redemptive history. And the battles were limited to just a handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. 
So with all the other nations, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God's people were commanded to pursue not war, but peace with those nations. So the purpose for all of these battles, Israel wasn't commanded to commit genocide. There's no ethnic cleansing that's going on. In fact, ethnicity itself was not the reason Israel was given the mission of taking the land. But if Israel were to allow unrepentant Canaanites to remain in the land, they would drag the whole people of God down into idolatry, injustice, and evil. And God was committed to a different way. And so therefore, Christians uh, today, Christians today are to condemn this kind of behavior in in other circumstances. Uh, There's no warrant today. No warrant today whatsoever for nations to destroy other nations in order to take their land. The third major movement in the book of Joshua is Joshua, uh, once they get into the land, Joshua divides up the land to the 12 tribes of Israel. And basically that is just saying God is faithful to deliver what he's promised. And the fourth and final major movement and theme here in the book of Joshua is Joshua gives some final speeches to the people of Israel, similar to the speeches that Moses gave in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Joshua is reminding God's uh, people of God's generosity, God's grace, and he calls God's people to turn from idolatry. Um, and the Canaanite gods, and to be faithful to the covenanting God, the true and faithful God. And if they're faithful, it's going to lead to uh, a life, and there's going to be great blessing that takes place there in the land. If, however, they are unfaithful to the covenant, Israel will call down upon itself the same divine judgment that the Canaanites experienced. And they'll be kicked off the land and go into exile. And so Joshua leaves them with a choice. (laughs) That's right, that's how the book ends. There is sort of a cliffhanger. What is Israel going to do? And that's the big question that looms. And that's how the book ends. Well, how is the book of Joshua relevant to to me and and to you? Well, today... God won't work in a way that you expect to work. God won't deliver on his promises in the way that you and I expect God to deliver on his promises. But take heart, that's been the experience of God's people uh, throughout history. And so the story is going somewhere. That's the point. The the story is going somewhere. Not because I can finally see how the puzzle pieces are beginning to fit together. No, no. The story is going somewhere and has always been going somewhere even when I don't understand God. Even when I don't see all of the puzzle pieces. And so God wants more for his people than a place or a land. God wants his people God wants their hearts. And so God allows them to go through things like Jericho, where they see the power of God on display, and where they think, 
you know what? It's okay. It's, it's going to be okay after all. God really is going to be faithful to his promises. Joshua, it's tempting to think here. I mean, the, the name uh, Joshua, it's named uh, that um, perhaps as the hero of the book, right? Well, no, the, uh, that's the book's name, but God is the hero of the book of Joshua, just like all the other books of the Bible. Joshua's name means Yahweh saves. So Joshua's name points to a need for a redeemer, and the redemption is only found in God. And so Joshua preaches the importance of a coming redeemer, Jesus. And Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, or Yahweh saves. Well, there's our narrative summary, and so why don't we look at a sampler passage today out of the book of Joshua. And so today I've chosen Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 18. This is the last chapter there in the book, and it's, it's Joshua's final speech. It's his final speech to the Israelites, and it's very relevant for, uh, for us. I'm going to highlight verse 15. I'll, I'll start out by reading verse 15, and then we'll get into the rest of the verses. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now you may have seen that sign somewhere in someone's house uh, with those words there. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve and worship. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Just last week when uh, we were volunteering here in the Bayview neighborhood here in San Francisco, delivering meals, which we do each Friday, and it's a pleasure to do that. As we were out making those deliveries, we saw that sign uh, inside someone's home. And as soon as we saw it, it made us respond with, hey, wait a minute, we serve the same God. We worship the same God. I mean, what a cool moment whenever that happens, when someone is identifying with this very verse that comes here from the book of Joshua. Well, let's read verses 14 through 18. Again, found in the 24th chapter of the book of Joshua. I invite you to follow along through the QR code or just open up an app on your phone or just the old school Bible. Let's let's get into the word together. These are the words of the Lord spoken through Joshua to the people of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt, from that land of slavery, and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey 
and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Let's pray right now as we ask God to speak to us from his word. Father God, help us through this Lent season to not be fooled into thinking that we're missing something. Let us remember that we have access to all that you are. Reveal to us how we serve and worship and follow other gods beside you. Help us turn from those false gods and turn back to you, the only living and true God. In Jesus' name, we pray all this. Amen. Well, in this sermon, I'm basically going to set up a choice. And this is exactly what Joshua is doing. And there's a choice that's before his original listeners. And there's a choice before us. And that is, uh, so um, there's an invitation to make a choice. That's the first thing we're saying. Uh, And that is between incompetent gods or the incomparable God. First of all, the invitation to make a choice. Verse 15, he's saying here, choose for yourselves. Do you you get the thrust of of his speech here? Do you you, you see where he's coming from? He's essentially assuming that that everyone is a, a worshiper already. I mean, that's just sort of his presumption. That's his starting point. That's his polemic. That's sort of his argument there is he's assuming that, that you and I are already worshipers. And so the question is not if you're going to worship, but rather the better question is, who? Who are you going to choose to worship? Jesus, in the very uh, first century, he told his audience, he says, come to me if you are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus also saying there in Luke chapter 5, there in the first century, it's not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. There's a decision to be made, not out of pressure, Not out of guilt. In fact, it's out of reflection. To take some self-inventory. Jesus did it in his day and basically saying, look, if if your soul is is so healthy and you're so righteous that you don't need a Savior, then I can't help you. If you're not able to admit that you're a sinner and in need of a Savior, I can't do you any good. The same way as he did in the in the other passage there, that, look, if you're, if you're just full of energy and, and you're doing just great and you're not burdened whatsoever and life is just wonderful, then you probably don't need me. But if you're weary and if you're burdened, come to me and I can give you rest like nothing and like no one else. So there's a decision to be made, verse 15 here, that we're looking at in our passage today, verse 15, Joshua was saying, you're going to serve somebody. And by the way, that word serve here means to worship. It means to follow. And to fear God, it means to 
revere God. It means to love God in such a way that you respond in gratitude for God's grace. And if you don't choose the Lord, you're, you're going to have to choose between the different categories of false gods. Bob Dylan, <laughs> Bob Dylan's song, you've you got to serve somebody. You've got to serve somebody. He says, or he sings, it, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. We, we were made in that way. So Joshua and his original audience would be incredulous about a modern-day notion that you can make your way through this very tiring and disappointing world without God. Joshua and Joshua's audience would have assumed that you would be worshiping God. How else are you going to make it through this world? Verse 15, he says, Choose for yourselves this day. Very key words there, this day. And that is every day. Every day. The decision is made daily. Now, yes, it begins often with a big decision to follow God and to become a follower of Jesus, but it's not just a one-off decision. It's a conscious, perpetual commitment of the heart. Again, responding out of grace. Responding because this God is a faithful and true and loving God. Therefore, this day I'm making a pledge. I'm pledging glad allegiance to this God. So this big decision to follow Jesus, perhaps some of you are considering it right now. Others of you are following Jesus, and so your decision is to re-up today, to, to recommit to follow Jesus again today. So it's followed up by a lot of small decisions to worship God and to follow God. You know, like Endurance is a lot different than enthusiasm. Of course, following Jesus entails enthusiasm uh, because we ponder and we reflect on his grace and his forgiveness which gives us enthusiasm. But there's endurance to this life and lifestyle of following God and being Jesus' follower and a God worshiper. I mean, think about the difference between weddings and faithfulness. Weddings. I mean, in the moment, a couple pledges love and fidelity to one another. And I've officiated several of those, and you've been to several of those, I'm sure. And, and those couples would they, would, they would, they would say in that moment, there's no way that they're ever going to forget their promise that they're going to make to this other person. In the moment, the couple pledges love and fidelity, and in many cases, not too many years later, that glow may be gone. And in some cases, replaced by resentment or anger or even violence. The promises are easily made, but they're hard to keep. And so choosing to worship and follow God and keeping that commitment is based on gratitude. It's a daily gratitude and reflection on. And that's what Joshua is wanting these people to do. That's what he's doing for them. He's reminding them there in chapter 24, the entire chapter, he's reminding them of God's faithfulness. That's how they're going to remember the covenant. Is they're going to remember the covenant maker. 
In John chapter 15, there in the New Testament, in the Bible, Jesus says regarding this choosing who you're going to worship, he says, you didn't choose me. Oh yeah, you may choose to worship me, but in, in fact, you didn't choose me. And what he means by that is he says, I chose you. Yeah, I chose you. And since I chose you and have given you my grace and my forgiveness, you now can choose me and you now want to choose me. Onward, in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, Jesus speaking. You are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Jesus is not the reward that's given for our good behavior. Jesus is the remedy given to us because of our inability to be faithful. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news here in this passage of Joshua chapter 24. So there's a choice. There's a choice that's laid before those Israelites there on that day. And there's a choice laid before you and before me this day. And again tomorrow. And here is one of the choices. Incompetent gods. Incompetent gods. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. If you go back and read that, it says, Long ago your fathers, even before Abraham, served other gods. He's reminding his audience. You have a heritage. You have a history of idolatry. You, you may not like to hear that, but that is part of your ancestry. That is part of your very heritage. He's reminding them of that. And, and then listen to the action given here to us in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped. Wow. Isn't Joshua like overreacting a little bit? I mean, I mean, isn't he being a little dramatic by saying, throw away these idols? It seems a little harsh, you reckon? Now, the Bible, however, is filled with stories depicting the innumerable ways and forms and devastating effects of idol worship. I mean, the Bible is filled with narrative after narrative of that. And our common arrogance usually says something like, whew, glad that's not me. Glad I don't have any idol worship going on in my life, but we are just like that. We are just like that. Nietzsche, the philosopher, said, there are more idols in the world than there are realities let me repeat that. He says, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. And John Calvin, writing in 1536, says that it's not that the idols are out there somewhere, but he says the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. Joshua, writing here to this group, is essentially saying the same thing that John Calvin would go on to say in 1536, is that, you know, be careful, idolatry lurks in your heart. 
Let me read a little bit more from John Calvin in his book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Again, published in 1536, he says, The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. This mind, in this way, conceives the idol, and the hand gives it birth. Starts in the heart, starts in the mind, starts in the very soul, and eventually works itself out through the hands where we construct something that we give our attention to and we give our allegiance to and our worship to. I mean, we we want the gods to serve us, right? (laughs) I mean, this notion of choose whom you will serve, I mean, we don't like the way that sounds. We, we We want a God that serves us. I mean, and to the degree that we serve them, we hope and demand that we are repaid for this service that we give to this God. Give us good fortune. Give us a secure welfare. We want to barter and negotiate with this God. So every false God, a heart can choose, such as the God of money, the God of love, the God of success, the God of sex, power. All of those false gods that our hearts can choose. There's a biblical narrative that explains how specific, how specific kind of idolatry works itself out into our lives. It basically leads to destruction and ruin. That's another way of saying that idolatry steals life from you. It promises you everything, but it steals your very identity from you. So so that's why it's such a big deal here to Joshua as God's leader. That's why it's such a big deal to God here in the Scriptures. And that's because anything can be a false God, especially the very best things in life can turn into an idol for us. Idolatry is simply a God alternative is simply when we set our hearts on something else besides God. In addition, in addition to reading the book of Joshua this week, I spent some time uh, going back and reading portions of a book called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. And in a part of his book here near the end, he, he, he talks about different idol categories. And I just want to mention some of these as you and I reflect on some of the types of idols that can be being made in our our hearts uh, called idol factories. Uh, He says theological idols. It is basically creating a type of God that doesn't even exist in the scriptures. That is definitely a type of idol. He mentions sexual idols, that is addictions to things like pornography or fetishisms that promise but don't deliver a sense of intimacy and acceptance. Um, ideals of physical beauty on yourself and for others. That could be a form of idolatry. He mentions magic and ritual idols, that of, that of witchcraft and the occult, and that all idolatry in the end is a form of magic. 
that seeks to rebel against the order of transcendent reality rather than submitting to it in love and wisdom. Uh, he goes on to talk about political and economic idols, uh, ideologies of the left, right, and libertarian that absolutize some aspect of political order and make it the solution. Uh, he talks about racial and national idols, that of racism, militarism, nationalism, or ethnic pride that turns bitter or oppressive. He talks about relational idols, dysfunctional family systems of codependency, living your life vicariously through your children. He talks about religious idols, moralism, legalism, the idolatry of success and religion as a pretext for abuse of power. He talks about philosophical idols, a system of thought that make some uh, some created thing the problem with life instead of sin, and some human product or enterprise the solution to our problems instead of God's grace. He talks about cultural idols, that is radical individualism, as in the West, that makes an idol out of individual happiness at the expense of community. Shame cultures that make an, out, an idol out of family and and clan at the expense of individual rights. And he talks about deep idols, motivational drives and temperaments made into absolutes, um, power idolatry, for example. Life only has meaning, or I have worth if I have power and influence over others, or approval idolatry. Life only has meaning if I uh, and I have worth if I am loved and respected by a certain person's name there. Or comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning and I have worth if I have this kind of pleasure or experience or a particular quality of life. And he talks about control idolatry. That life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of Fill in the blank. Wow, let me just say, rereading that feels almost overwhelming when you think about the idolatry that's in our hearts and uh, how our hearts are idol factories. But there's hope. There's hope in the gospel. And Joshua is giving his people hope. He's giving his people hope. Because um, here, here's what will not work. Here's what will not work in getting rid of the idols. First thing is blaming the things. Blaming the things or blaming the idols themselves. That, that they are, are, are disappointing you. And you simply just need to move on to something better. And, and all that really does is you end up creating a different idol. You end up creating maybe a shinier idol or a bigger idol to replace the other one. So that doesn't work. And another thing that doesn't work in getting rid of idols is blaming yourself. Oh, I'm such a failure. I hate myself. Everyone else seems so happy in this life. But, but, but what's wrong with me? Why can't I seem to find happiness? We may be thinking. Um, let me read Psalm chapter, uh, a portion of Psalm chapter 115 that says, Their idols are silver and gold. 
made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. The idols, they they have even feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can these idols utter a sound with their throats. And those who make these idols will become like these idols. And so will all who trust in them. See, here's the warning that Joshua is giving. Get rid of all of those idols. All of those idols are are, are only going to turn you into something that's lifeless, just like the idol itself. C.S. Lewis, writing in his book, Mere Christianity, says, Most people, if they have really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Oh, how true those words are. So verse 14 here from Joshua, throw away the gods of your ancestors, that your ancestors worshipped. That's why he's speaking in such language as that. Well, here's what does work. Let's get to that part. Here's what does work in getting rid of the idols. And it's the incomparable God. So we started with saying there's a choice laid before you today. It's either going to be the incompetent gods or it's going to be this incomparable God. And by the way, God does the work. When we say what doesn't work about getting rid of the idols and what does work, it's God who does the work. It's God who does the work. Joshua 24, Joshua gives them a history lesson. Go back and read this speech. He's giving them a history lesson of their forefathers and how their forefathers had worshipped other gods until, until, The one true God rescued them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. That's when life changed for them. So he's calling them back to that. And there's a prophet here in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 28, asks this question. Where are the gods you have made for yourselves? Let them come and save you when you are in trouble. Oh, wow. Listen to that again. Where are the gods you have made for yourselves? Let them come and save you when you are in trouble. So the incomparable God is able to come and deliver you when you call upon him. Here's what works in getting rid of idols. Number one, there are three things, I believe. Number one is recognize the idol. Recognize the idol. In humility, name the idol. Take some time and reflect, ponder. And this Lent season is a beautiful time to be thinking about the cross of Christ and your own sin and your own idolatry. But you need to recognize, we need to locate that idol by looking into your heart, looking into your daydreams. What is it that you daydream about? What is it that you truly want What is it that you truly feel like will give you what you've always dreamed for? 
or to look at your nightmares, not only your daydreams, but your nightmares. What is your worst fear happening? And a lot of times thinking about your daydream or your nightmare can reveal potentially and help you recognize your idol. And ultimately, it's when we put something besides God in the center of our lives, it's going to create panic. It's going to create anxiety for us. It's going to create fear. And it eventually dehumanizes us. The second thing that works is repentance. Repent from that idolatry and replace that idolatry. Turn back to the living and true God. Verse 16 in our passage today, uh, the people respond after Joshua uh, you know, invites them to choose who they're going to worship. They respond in verse 16 by saying, and I invite you to look at verse 16 right now. They, they say, far be it from us. Basically, that's a way of saying, may it never be that we wouldn't follow and worship this God. Are you being silly? Are you crazy? I mean, it's seen again, or in a similar way, in Romans chapter 6. The Apostle Paul is saying, shall we keep on sinning so that God may give us more grace? May it never be. And so to continue to live in sin shows that you don't really understand God's grace. To not choose today that you're going to worship this true and living God shows that you've forgotten how faithful God really is. Verse 17, they say, it it, it was the Lord our God who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt. They're calling that to mind. They're remembering the very character of God. That's how you turn from an idol. That's how you and I repent. Let go of an idol and turn towards the living God as we remember this, these attributes of God. There's a personal decision that's being made here. Verse 18, they say, We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. He is our God. So we said, recognize your idol. We said, repent and replace your idol. And the third thing here is, reorient your life around God. Reorient your entire life around God. That's what it means. That's what Joshua is saying whenever he says, choose today whom you will worship and serve. Choose today who will be at the center of your life. And it's this incomparable God. It's this incomparable that no one, nothing is like this God of the Bible. Micah, one of the Old Testament prophets, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, asked this question as we think about this incomparable God. Micah says, Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. That rhetorical question that Micah's answering there, the answer is, there is no other God like like you, O God. Therefore, out of gratitude, and because we've received your mercy and your grace, 
we choose today to follow you, you alone. Lord, have mercy on us to, to, to follow you. C.S. Lewis, again, writing in Mere Christianity, says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Something supernatural. Something eternal. You and I were made for this incomparable God, not the incompetent little g gods. In conclusion, here in this Lent season, remember that amidst all the competing narratives that are out there and in here, your deepest identity and the truest thing about you is your identity in Christ. Let's pray, thanking God for his faithfulness right now. Let's pray. Father God, help us see our own heart and our tendency towards idolatry. By your powerful grace, help us repent and turn from these false gods and turn back to you, the incomparable God, the only living and true God. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and also pledge glad allegiance. Amen.